What a mighty God we serve. Let's just celebrate the Lord in the life of the choir one more time. Bless you, bless you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. We may be seated. God bless you. We may be seated. It gives me great joy to welcome all of you once again in the name of Jesus. We are very much blessed to have in the house to minister the word of God to us today. Um, A good pal of mine, we've known each other for about 13 years or more now. And um, we came to Aberdeen almost about the same time. But by the special grace of God, he has been moved on to um, another island in a town called Balimena. And um, Pastor Mark is the pastor of the Ealing Pentecostal Church in Balimena, Northern Ireland. Uh, a great teacher of the Word of God and is being a major encouragement unto us as a church. So as you please open your hearts unto the Lord to receive ministry, I'm confident and I pray that you will receive a special word from the Lord in Jesus' name. Please welcome with me um, good friend and pastor, Pastor Mark Stone, all the way from Bellamina. Come on, give him a warm abiding welcome. Hallelujah. helps if you know what you're doing, doesn't it? Well, I think I've just gone to heaven. Wow. Thank you so much. I tell you, that was amazing, wasn't it? What a mighty God we serve. Oh, can you guys come back to Northern Ireland? Can I just put you in my suitcase? Uh, Us white folk over there need some of you black folk. I tell you. It's just such a a joy to be with you. Um, I've been away for um, a year now from Aberdeen. Uh, Twelve years I was here, ministered here, as as Pastor Chris has said. And I am familiar with Redeemed here. I've ministered to a number of Redeemed churches around the country. I've been privileged to do that with the Equip uh, Leadership uh, Million Leader Mandate. And some of you may recognize me from there. If you're an Equipper, let's see the hands. Any Equippers still here? You've all gone to equip other people. God bless you. Uh, it's great to see you. And I've been teaching at the Bible school now since its inception as well. And I knew we were in for a good day yesterday because the class captain was called happiness. And then a woman came in and sat down beside her and she was called joy. So with happiness and joy, it was bound to be a great day. So if happiness and joy are here, well, they are here, aren't they? Amen. Amen. Well, praise God. I'm going to um, come on. I I, I want to talk to you. My title of my talk this morning is Our Glorious Christ. Can you say that with me? Our Glorious Christ. And if you have your Bibles, if you can turn with me to the book of Revelation. We're in Revelation today and in chapter 1. Now, um, 
I love teaching and preaching about Jesus. I, I can't get enough, really, of teaching about Jesus. And one of the things that we do every Sunday morning in our church in, in Balamina is we have communion. And um, we take the bread and we take the wine to remember what Jesus did for us in the cross at Calvary. And Jesus said, this do in remembrance of me. And the cross has got so much that we must dwell on and consider as believers and followers of Jesus Christ um, because of the truths that it presents to us, the truths that stir our hearts as a result of what Christ did for us there. Um, and they, these truths keep us following him to live our lives for the praise of his glory. That's what you were doing this morning as you lifted your hearts and voices to Jesus Christ. We can do that because of the cross. Amen? We can do that because he has made a way where there was no way because of the cross. Consider the cross for a little moment for me because there are so many facets and aspects of it for us to think about. Because of the cross, did you know that you're redeemed? Did you know that? That's your name. You're redeemed. It means that today you have been bought with a great price out of the slavery of sin. Hallelujah. Because of the cross, you are justified. Hallelujah. Uh, We who know we are guilty walk from the court of God's justice as innocent men and women. That's what justified means. Because of the cross, we are forgiven. Our rebellion and our guilt has been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Hallelujah. Because of the cross, we have a substitute. My Bible tells me that it was God's will to cause his only son to suffer in our place. And it says that Jesus willingly and joyfully embraced that for the joy set before him. We have a substitute because of the cross. Because of the cross, we are adopted. Once we were aliens and strangers. We were foreigners to the covenant and promises of God. We were without hope and without God. But now, because of the cross, hallelujah, we have been brought near. We have been called sons and daughters, hallelujah. Because of the cross, Jesus has become our propitiation. Now that's a big word, isn't it? That's in your authorized version. And I don't think we should lose these big words from our understanding and our vocabulary. But you know what propitiation means? Because of the cross, it means that the wrath of a holy God fell on his only son instead of us. He is our propitiation because of the cross. Because of the cross, he is our expiation. Do you know what expiation is? It means that he washes us clean. Hallelujah. Not only are we forgiven from our sins, but we are cleansed and purified from the sin that has been done to us. Do you know what that means? It means as you go through this life and you are hurt and you are wounded and you accumulate the stain of sin upon your life because of what other people have done to you. Do you know what? Because of the cross, you are purified and washed clean. You are clothed in robes of white. You belong to the king of kings. Hallelujah. Because of the cross. The reformers said this, that because of the cross, Jesus Christ is our Christos victor. Do you know what that is? He is Christ victorious. It means this, that because of the cross, Jesus Christ has defeated the very powers of sin and death and hell itself. 
And he is an overcomer. And when you and I are in Jesus Christ, because of the cross, we too are overcomers. Hallelujah. Because of the cross, all of these theologies and doctrines spring and flow because of the cross. I could talk to you all day about the cross. Do you know the cross? Do you know the Christ of the cross? It is glorious and wonderful. And there is so much to remember, so much to give thanks for, so much for us to be humbled by, to drive us to our knees in worship and in adoration. Such love, the hymn writer says, demands my soul, my life, my all. I thank God for the cross and we must never stop thanking him. For at the cross we are changed, we are forgiven, cleansed, purified. We are adopted because of the cross. Paul determined to never leave it. To him his raison d'etre was to preach Christ and him crucified. For what happened at the cross not only saves us, it shapes us. Fashions our new identities of who we are in Christ Jesus. It causes us to see ourselves as God sees us now. As new creations. As righteous people. As a people who belong to God. That we may declare his praise. Do you know that you're a new creation this morning? Now as wonderful as the cross is. It is not the totality of all that we have as followers of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus asked us not only to break bread, but to do so until he comes again. Do you know what that means? It means that at communion, when you break bread, maybe in before the service or in one another's homes, when you remember the death of Jesus Christ, you do so until he comes. What does that mean? It means that not only did Jesus die on the cross, but it means that he rose from the dead. It means that he ascended to heaven. It means that one day he's coming again. He says, do it until I return. And so when we celebrate communion, we not only remember his death, but we are remembering the fact that Jesus Christ has now risen and conquered and ascended and is glorified and will one day come as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Hallelujah. We don't simply have the cross, but we have the one who has defeated its power. That's why if we have a cross, we don't have someone hanging on it. We have an empty cross because he's no longer there. And my point is this. Jesus not only ministered to us from the cross, but he is ministering to you and to us right now. He's ministering to us right now. And he does so from a position, get this, of sovereign, unstoppable, triumphant, and glorious authority. It is that that has been capturing my imagination over these last number of months. And it is this image of Christ as the glorified king. And what he is currently doing in his church that has been blessing me and challenging me. Oh, man. All right, I think we should read the word, should we? That was my introduction. Come with me to Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. Are you ready for some Bible study today? Okay, Revelation chapter 1, verse 12 says this. I turned, this is the Apostle John, John the Revelator. 
I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool and as white as snow and his eyes were like blazing fire and his feet were like burnish, were like bronze glowing in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters and in his right hand he held seven stars and out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword and his face was shining like the sun in all of its brilliance. Wow, this is Jesus, the risen Lord. Right now, this is Jesus right now. John, let me paint some background to you. John, the apostle, the youngest, we think, of the 12 apostles, is exiled under the reign of the Roman emperor, Domitian. It's probably around about 95 AD, 96 AD, around that region. Probably after more than 60 years after walking with Jesus through Judea and Galilee, John had been pastoring the church in Ephesus. In fact, when you read 1 John, that first letter, he's writing to his church in Ephesus there. And so it may well be that John is pastoring at Ephesus, an old man now, and because um, he has refused to bow the knee to Caesar, to Domitian, in those days, the Roman emperor thought he was God. And he would demand of everyone in the Roman Empire that they would bow the knee and confess that Caesar is Lord and God by offering a sacrifice at a cult, at a, at a shrine to, to Caesar. The Apostle John didn't do it. He says, I can't confess Caesar as God because he's not. There's only one God. And so he finds himself arrested and exiled to the island of Patmos. Here is a man in his 80s, maybe even into his 90s, um, coming near the end of the journey, working out uh, hard labor in exile at a penal colony off off the modern coast, off the coast of modern-day Turkey on a little island called Patmos. And it's there that the Holy Spirit that comes upon him and, and he is caught up into the Spirit, it says. And he has a vision of Jesus, the glorified Christ. He receives the revelation, the apocalypsis. That's revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And he is granted an insight into how history will culminate in this wonderful book of the Bible, the last book of Revelation. But before he gets to seeing what will unfold, this happens, I guess, from chapters four on when the revelation and the vision speaks to the future of how history will end. What happens in chapters one to three is this, is that John is given a vision of Jesus right now. And, and he receives a word for the church right now. So chapters 2 and 3 are, are letters written by Jesus to seven churches in Asia Minor and in modern-day Turkey. But these churches speak throughout the ages and they speak down to us today. And so he receives a vision of Christ speaking to his church. This is the first thing that strikes me about Jesus right now. We see him on the cross, his His glory is veiled, clothed in flesh, his power restrained, his majesty hidden. And John was there and John saw it. But now he sees, get this, he sees the God of ages. And he recognizes how holy this Son of Man is and how far short he falls of his glory and his omnipotent power. And he falls down as a result in verse 17 as a man dead. (laughs) 
And this is the way when you get a vision of God nigh, when you get a vision of Christ nigh. This is how people respond and react in Scripture. I mean, Isaiah, in chapter 6 of Isaiah, saw God enthroned in the temple. We sang about him today. And he cries out, Woe is me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. Ezekiel, chapter 1 of Ezekiel, sees a vision of God and his glory. And what happens? He falls face down. In fact, they call him the face down prophet. Because as you read through the book of Ezekiel, you'll see that he encounters the presence of God over and over again. And every time he does, he just falls flat in his face. (laughs) The glorified God, you can't stand in his presence. I mean, he's glorious, church. And it's interesting that nothing of the terrifying future that would be unveiled to John would cause him to quake the way he quakes after he saw the glorified Christ. I mean, he describes the throne room of God in chapters 4 and 5. He sees the crystal sea. He sees the emerald rainbow. He beholds the four living creatures. He watches as the seven seals of judgment are loosed upon an earth that is awaiting judgment. And none of that causes him to quake. None of that causes him to fear. None of that causes him to shake. But one vision... One aspect of the glorified Christ and what happens? He is face down. He falls like a dead man. Hallelujah. Folks, what you got to get is this. This is who Jesus is right now. This is who he is right now. John turns, we read in the scripture, in response to hearing the voice that was so arresting That it demanded his attention just like the sound of a trumpet's blast. When the trumpet played this morning, you couldn't mistake its sound or its tone. And when a trumpet sounds out like a blast, you stop and you turn. And John hears a voice like the sound of a trumpet. As he turns, the first thing that he sees, interestingly in our reading and in our text today, Is not Jesus, but the first thing he mentions is this, is that he saw seven golden lampstands. You see that? Surely the first thing he would have mentioned would have been this brilliant and glorious figure that is standing among the lampstands. But the lampstands get first mention. The church, in other words, gets mentioned first. And as the chapter unfolds, we see that the seven lampstands are the seven historic churches that chapters 2 and 3 are written to. And of course, these seven churches represent the totality of the church, because seven is the number of completeness. Isn't that right? And so it's not simply written to seven individual churches in Asia Minor, but it's written to all of the church through all of the days of grace in which we live. The seven letters are written to you and me. Hallelujah. In Exodus 25, we see there, part of the temple furniture was a seven-armed golden candlestick, which the Jews called the menorah. There's a massive menorah outside the Knesset in Jerusalem. And this was a symbol of God's people. This was the symbol of God's people. It was representative of God's people. And so we have here seven golden lampstands, and it represents you and me today. It represents the church 
of Jesus Christ. And lampstands, what do lampstands do? What is the purpose of a lampstand? What? To shine light, isn't that right? A lampstand holds a lamp. And what does a lamp do? A lamp shines. Jesus said to us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, that you are the light of the world. Each church, this church, is a light to Aberdeen. Did you know that? But it's not only that you are a light, but you are golden. You are golden. And gold represents that which is most precious. That which is costly. That which is lovely. That which is beautiful. And the church is not only meant to be a light to the world, but we are to God's heart the most precious and the most beautiful beautiful and valuable thing in the earth. We are so precious to Him that He would leave His heaven, that He would clothe Himself in our humanity, that He would come and suffer and die at a cross for you and I to purchase us with His own blood. Do you know that you're precious to Him? The church is a light and we are golden to our Lord. And so the context of what we're about to hear, the context of what we're about to see as John reveals to us what he beholds in this vision of Jesus Christ is in direct connection and relationship to where Christ is. He is moving among the lampstands. Do you see that? What does that mean? He is moving right now amongst the church. And so what we're about to see, church, get this, is who Jesus is right now and what he's doing in the midst of the church as John describes and gives us imagery and words to try and describe this Christ, this glorified God who is seen. He is trying to give us some insight into what Christ is doing in his church today. And it's this that I want us to look at in the context of the glorified Christ. The first thing, I love this so much, John says, when he turns around, he says, he uses the term son of man. Do you see that? He says, I saw someone like the son of man to describe Jesus. The Gospels, this was Jesus' favorite way of describing himself, the son of man. We see it over and over again there. But that title, I, I wonder if you understand this, is a title that is heavy with Old Testament prophetic importance. Did you know that? Come with me to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. You need to see this. If you don't get this already, understand who the Son of Man is. Look at Daniel 7, 13. It says this. Daniel had a vision as well. And he says, in my vision at night, verse 13, I looked. And there before me was one like a what? A Son of Man. Coming with the clouds of heaven. And you'll remember as Jesus stood before the high priest. Remember at his trial? He says, you'll see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He's quoting from this verse, this prophetic verse. He is connecting himself with verse 13. The Son of Man will come with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. Verse 14, look what happened to him. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power and all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The Son of Man is coming in the clouds of glory. And he has been given all authority and all sovereignty. And his dominion will never pass away. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ. Christ is Lord, church. He's the Son of Man. 
Oh, glory. This is who John sees. He says, I see one like the Son of Man. As each image and detail of Jesus is described to us, not only does he describe Christ's characteristics to us now, but he tells us what he's doing in his church. Now, I want to share seven things with you as we work through our text today. And the first thing is this, is that Jesus, in the midst of his church, is empowering his church. He is empowering his church. Revelation 1.13 says, Among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. He's among the church. He's among the lampstands. Jesus is moving in his church. His presence is here. Matthew chapter 28 verse 20 says, I am with you always. I'm with you always. And John says, I will never leave you as orphans. Jesus promised never to leave us and never to forsake us. Church, do you understand this today? That the glorified Christ is in your church. He's in your church. And when Jesus Christ is in your church, there's power. There's power. Galatians chapter 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live But Christ lives in me. Not only is he in the church, but he is in us. The power of the risen God, King of Kings, dwells within you and I. Acts 1.8 You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. We do not worship a dead martyr church. We don't worship... Someone who died on a cross 2,000 years ago. And that was it. But we worship a glorified God of all power. And we have incredible intimacy and communion with this living Christ. Not only as individuals, but it is true within us as a church. Matthew eighteen twenty, Jesus says this. Where two or three are gathered in my name. <laughs> I'm right there. Right in your midst. It doesn't matter how small you are. If you're on your own, I'm inside of you. But when you gather in my name, guess what? If it's even two of you, my power and my presence is right where you are. Do you get it? Do you understand that? When I went to Balamina, I went into a church that had just experienced a split. Um, a lot of hurt and pain in the church. Still is. A lot of work to be done there. Strong church. Torn apart by division. Very sad. Not glorifying to God at all. And people had said over the church that I am now pastoring. That it was Ichabod. That the glory had departed. That the glory had departed. And within a year that church would be dead. It would would close. The The candlestick would be removed. But this is what I understand to be true as I read the word of God. Where people love Jesus Christ. Jesus is there. And where Jesus is, there's power. And what the devil means for evil, God means for good. And he redeems and turns around the plans of the enemy to throw them back in his face. Hallelujah. And that church is moving in the right direction now. That church is getting stronger. We have a long way to go, but praise God, we are not dead. Why are we not dead? Because Jesus is in our midst. Jesus is walking amongst our candlestick. (laughs) Oh, glory. 
Glory, glory, glory. Number one then, he empowers his church. Know it. Remember it. This is what he's doing. Secondly, he intercedes for his church. I love this. Verse 13, Revelation 1. Dressed, he sees him. One like the Son of Man, moving amongst the candlesticks. He's dressed. He describes what he's clothed in. Dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his church. Now the word robe here... Um, I'm going to get technical a little bit with you, okay? There's the Old Testament written in Hebrew, but uh, there's also a translation in Greek called the Septuagint, okay, or the Seventy. You may have heard of it. And really it was used amongst the Jewish diaspora around the Mediterranean so that they could read it in their own language um, and that others could read it and understand it. And the word here for robe that's in Greek and Revelation, in the Old Testament it's used, that same word for robe is used and associated with kings, all right, so when it's used in the Septuagint, the Old Testament scriptures of the Greek, it's used of kings. So King Saul, for example, wore a robe like the one we're reading about here. But also in Daniel 10, for example, it describes there how a messenger wore a robe exactly like this, a long white robe flowing down to his feet, and sent a messenger to Daniel. And so what we see in the Old Testament 70 or Septuagint is that this word robe is associated with a kingly or a, a, a prophetic ministry. Do you see that? So this word, when you see it like that and it's connected, there is an association. But this is where it gets even more interesting. This word in, in the Old Testament is used the most frequently when it refers to what the high priest wore. Combine this with the sash that's around his chest that we read about here. And we see an association with the high priest that we read about in Exodus chapter 28 and chapters 39. We see Jesus here in his priestly role as a royal high priest for his church. Listen to what Hebrews says. Hebrews says this, Hebrews 2.17, For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Hallelujah. Hebrews 4.14, We have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven. Who is he? He is Jesus, the Son of God. Hallelujah. Hey, glory. He is our merciful. He is our faithful high priest. What does a high priest do? He intercedes. A high priest intercedes on behalf of the people. Romans 8, 34 tells us this. That Jesus is at the right hand of God. Doing exactly that. He is interceding for you and I. 1 John chapter 2 verse 1 tells us that we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ. You see, interceding means this. He is speaking in our defense. The word in John there is paraclete. And John uses this word of Christ, but Jesus uses the word paraclete to describe that when I go, I'm going to send another paraclete. I'm going to send another advocate, another counselor. Who is that? 
It's the Holy Spirit. But we've got to understand that in John, Jesus himself is called the paraclete. And he intercedes on our behalf before the Father. We have a high priest who stands in the gap for you and I. He wants the best for you and I. He comforts you and I. He comes alongside you and I. He is our guide. He is our leader. Hallelujah. Oh, So you know what this means and speaks to me of today? It, It tells me this. That I have the King of Kings in my camp. I have one who speaks on my behalf before the Father in heaven. He that is with me is greater. Hallelujah. No weapon formed against me is going to prosper. Why? Because I have the King of Kings on my side. It gives us great comfort. I don't know if you're going through a hard time today. I know that Aberdeen has experienced a downturn. But I just want to say this over your lives. When you've got Jesus Christ on your side, you can't lose. He's promised never to leave you and he's promised never to forsake you. He's promised to stand in the gap between you and God himself. And he will intercede on your behalf. He is in this church. He is your faithful and merciful high priest. Glory to God. Thirdly, this is where the challenge comes. Not only does he empower the church and intercede for the church, but also he purifies his church. Look at verse 14. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And here John sees Jesus in the role as as the one who purifies and disciplines and purges the church. New Testament is very clear on the standard that that Christ has for his church. 2 Corinthians 11.2, Paul says that he wants the church to be a pure virgin. He said that Jesus gave himself for the church to sanctify and to cleanse her so that she would be without wrinkle or spot. Paul goes on to say that Jesus reconciled the church in order to present her before God holy and blameless and above reproach. This isn't simply Paul. Peter tells us to do it as well. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that God will discipline his children for their own good. Jesus said in John 15 that he would prune the branches. 1 Peter 4.17 says that judgment begins with the household of God. Do you get this church? Jesus will cleanse and purify his church. He is coming for a pure bride. His head and hair were white like wool, like snow. It's a reference to Daniel 7, 9. Only there he's talking about God and his vision. When he describes his vision of God, but here it's associated with Jesus Christ. What's that mean? It means that in the Old Testament, these attributes describe God. In the New Testament, here in Revelation, he's describing the Christ. Christ is God. All authority, all holiness resides in him as well. Do you get it? When the text says that his hair and head were white like wool like snow, he's not talking about a flat mat here. He's talking about blazing, glorious, dazzling white. He's talking about the Shekinah glory white. He is talking about the purity and the holiness that is radiant here. Dazzling, like the sun shining off the purest of snow. But then it goes on and he says this and he he describes his eyes and his eyes were like blazing fire. And here we have a symbol of God's holiness, of Christ's holy, glorious, all-knowing, omniscient, penetrating gaze. 
He looks at everything in the church and he sees everything. Nothing is hidden. Nothing is hidden from his gaze. He has got eyes of blazing fire. Hebrews 4.13 says this. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Do you know this? Do you know that the holy God sees this church? Nothing is hidden. Nothing is missing to his gaze. Revelation 1.15, we go on and it says this, His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, red hot burning Brass or bronze here. Now in the Old Testament, bronze in the, in the temple, furniture, anything that was made of bronze or brass was always associated with sin. All right? It was always associated with sin. It was the furniture on which sin offerings were always offered. And feet um, that are glowing hot may be here a reference to the judgment of sin. In fact, that's of course what we see in chapters 2 and 3 as his blazing eyes look upon his church to bring judgment and says, repent, because if you don't repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand. But if you do repent, you get a, a prize. Oh my. And so we have this imagery of feet of glowing bronze. In ancient times, the king would sit on his throne and pronounce judgment and his wrath would fall on the one who was always below his feet. So in ancient cultures, the feet of the king were symbolic of his judgment. Do you see? And so what we have here is the imagery combined of Old Testament sin, furniture from the temple with a burning hotness that refers to judgment at the feet of a king beneath who the judgment will fall. What we get when we put all of these images together, when we get the head and the hair like wool of blazing sunlight off pure snow, when we get eyes of burning fire, when we get feet of burnished bronze and glowing bronze, we get an image of the Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who is coming for a pure bride. That's what happens in chapters 2 and 3, as I've said. Read those letters and you will see Christ saying through John to the church, repent, repent. And church, what concerns me is this in our day and age today is that so often we preach the message of grace and we must not stop preaching the message of grace. The message of grace is our hope, but that does not release us to sin again. It does not give us license to depart from the word of God, from the precepts of God. He's coming for a pure bride. And this hyper-grace that's out there, that's struggling to get free of legalism, which we must do. We must flee from legalistic religion. It's dead and it just killed you, but it doesn't give us license to live as we like. It doesn't mean that we can sleep around. It doesn't mean that we can break the Lord's commandments. It doesn't mean that we can say, I will do what I want and maybe I can just fit in the Lord. If I can make effort, if I can make some room. No, he's bought you with a price. You belong to him. He sees everything about you. And he sees everything about your church. He's coming for a pure bride. Wow. There's a challenge in that that we must heed. Number four. He speaks authoritatively to his church. Revelation 1.15. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. His voice was like a trumpet. 
Now John describes his voice like the crashing of the sea against the rocks. I love this. Again, Ezekiel 43 verse 2 describes God in exactly the same way. Jesus and God are divine. The sound of rushing waters here is the thundering voice of authority. It's like the crash of Niagara. It's the voice of power. It's the voice that commands. It's the voice that someday will speak to those who are in the grave. John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. Jesus Christ will call those who are in the grave, come out. (laughs) And they'll come out. They will hear the voice of rushing waters. What does this tell us today? Church, get this. This will bless you. The voice of God still speaks to his church today. We have the incredible privilege. I have the incredible privilege to stand here before you and speak his word. It's an incredible responsibility. It fills me with fear. But somehow, God can use those who communicate his word, despite my flaws and my inadequacy and my incomplete knowledge and my doctrine that may not completely be right, and yet somehow, God still speaks. Somehow, God will still speak through vessels that are not there yet. And change lives. I, I was preaching last Sunday morning and I came down and, and I, I spoke to a man afterwards. He was nearly in tears. He says, Pastor, I, I've never heard anything like that. I says, I didn't think I'd preach that well. He says, I've never heard anything like that. He says, you, you won't believe what's happened. I, uh, I had a dream this week and, and, and I didn't know what that dream meant. And, and I've been thinking about it. And when you preached... You preached what my dream was. And you explained my dream. And he's in tears. He's, he's what's, what's God doing? I didn't know about his dream. <laughs> but God speaks with a voice of many waters. When he speaks, his voice speaks with authority. To change lives. And he is still doing that today. Hallelujah. Number five. He controls his church. He speaks authoritatively to his church. He purifies his church. He's interceding for his church. He empowers his church. Here in verse 16, he controls his church. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Now verse 20 tells us that the seven stars are the angels to the seven churches. And the word there is angelos, and where we get the word angel. And everywhere else in Revelation, it's translated as angel correctly. But most theologians believe that the angels to the seven churches are messengers. That's what the Greek word angelos means. It means a messenger. That's what an angel is. It's just a messenger. And so most theologians and commentators will translate and think that the messengers or the, the angels to the church in Sardis or Philadelphia are not so much angels, but the pastors or an elder to the church. And it's into their care and keeping that the letter is being written. And they will then take that letter from John back to the church where it will be read on Sunday morning, on the Lord's day. And so in the context here, he holds seven stars, which are the seven pastors or the seven elders of the church. Now, what does this say to me? 
It says this. It says that Jesus Christ controls his church. It says that he is mediating his leadership through leaders that he himself has put in place. (laughs) That's what a spiritual leader does. It is someone who is a tool in the hands of Jesus Christ to mediate his leadership to the people. And this is a great comfort to me, Pastor Chris. We are held in the right hand of Almighty God. Your leaders are held in the right hand of God. That brings me great comfort and it brings me great encouragement. When Sunday comes and I wonder what went wrong. (laughs) When the service goes pants. You know what I'm talking about? When you have to get the black box out. Why did we crash and burn? Why am I doing this? On Monday morning I come back to this calling upon my life and I understand I am held in the right hand of a living God. God's call is on the spiritual leadership of your church and he mediates his authority and his leadership through those men and women of God. Hallelujah. But you know what? It's also a humbling thing as well and it keeps me humble because I'm just a tool in the hand of God. And as he can remove a lampstand, he can certainly just put down one star and pick up another one. And so I have to, as a spiritual leader, I have to cling to my Lord and Savior. I have to understand that he holds me. If you're in spiritual leadership today, you need to know a call upon your life and that he holds you. But you need to walk humbly as well. Don't be getting above yourself. Don't be getting too high and mighty. Think that you're the man of power for the hour. He holds you in his hand. He's a king in control of his church. And his leadership. Number six. I'm near done. Are you all right? Okay. Number six. Verse 16. He says this. Out of his mouth will come. Came a sharp double-edged sword. Oh, glory. Not only does he control his church. But you know what? He protects his church. He protects his church. And this sword signifies judgment. Revelation 19 verse 15 says this. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And this means that the Lord of the church has a sword that he wields in defense of his church. Chapter 2 verse 12 it says this. To the messenger of the church in Pergamum write. The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says repent therefore. Otherwise I will soon come to you and invite against them with the sword of my mouth. What does this mean? It means that Jesus Christ is wielding a sword and he will come against the enemies of the church, both inside the church and outside of the church. Now, we're not ISIS. We're not fundamentalists. We're not in that sense, let's pick up our AK-47s and go to war and shoot each other. But we've got to be very careful and understand that the judgment of a holy God will fall on those who call themselves Christians and seek to bring division within the church. The sword that comes from a holy God's mouth will strike you down. And you will receive the judgment of God if you do not repent. And those outside of the church that seek to harm his bride, that seek to bring low his bride, it may not be in this life, but one day they will stand before the great white throne. And they will feel the full weight of the judgment of a holy God fall upon them. Do you know what? He's going to protect you. He's protecting his church. He says this, I will build my church. And the very gates of hell 
will not prevail against them. Hallelujah. This church where Christ is preached, where he is lifted up, where he is glorified in your lives, he stands beside you with a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. He will protect you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Lastly, lastly, and then I'm done. He reflects the glory, his glory through his church. Oh, my goodness. Verse 16, Luke. His face was shining like the sun in all of its brilliance. Now, we've already seen that his head and his hair were white like wool, blazing white. But here, John sees his face like the shining sun in all of its strength. Now, I want to take you to another verse in the Old Testament. This is interesting. Judges chapter 5, verse 31. It says this. So may all your enemies perish, Lord. But may all who love you, listen, be like the sun when it rises in its strength. Do you see that? May all who love you be like the sun when it rises in all of its strength. John says, I saw his face and it was like the sun blazing. You can't look at the sun, can you? And when it's blazing at its brightest, you can't look at it. You go blind. And he says here, may those who love you be like the sun shining in all its strength. And here's the point. When John sees Jesus, he sees his holiness and purity and his glory, and it is overwhelming to him. But get this, to those who love the Lord, the same glory shines not only upon you, but through you, through you, that God ministers his glory through the church. Ephesians chapter 3 says this, it is God's intent that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known. Hallelujah. It means this, is that Christ in you will be seen by other people wherever you go and declare the goodness and the favor and the life and the love and the grace of a living God who died to rescue you. People will see the glory of God. Some will choose to reject it, but you need to hear this. Some will see. And some will believe. Some people are here right now because they have seen and believed. And there are other people out there whom God has already called. All you need to do is find them. And they will see the glory of God in your life. And through you, they will see Jesus Christ. What's John's response? When I saw him, verse 17, I fell at his feet as though dead. John when he sees the Christ who is glorified, is completely overwhelmed. And my heart, my prayer for you today is this, is that you would catch a fresh vision of Jesus. My prayer for you as a church, that you would understand who is walking in your midst. My prayer for you is that you would see with eyes of faith that this King of Kings is no longer dead on the cross. He has done that. It is finished. You've been ushered in to his family and into his presence. And now he is in you and in your church. And there is power because he is in your church. Hallelujah. And he is interceding for you. And he's coming for a pure bride. So get your act together and clean up your life. He is the one who will speak authoritatively to you through his word. Hallelujah. He is the one who will protect you. He will never let the enemy tear you down. He will never let him remove you from the palm of his hand. Nothing and no one can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. And through you, church, he will outwork his kingdom. And the gates of hell themselves will not prevail against it. Hallelujah. Glory. Glory. 
Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray. Let's pray. Oh, my Lord God. Lord, my prayer for me, for my church, my prayer for these lovely people here who are redeemed. Lord, for the church of Jesus Christ all across this land, the nation. Lord, that we would get a bigger vision of Jesus. Lord, help us to understand who is walking amongst us. Help us to see, Lord, what John saw. Help us to see with eyes that of faith and be overwhelmed with wonder that this King of Kings is ours, that he belongs to us and that we belong to him and we are his bride and he is our bridegroom. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would stir our hearts with this understanding and with this faith that no matter what comes against us, God is in our midst working out his plans and he is sovereign and nothing can stop him and nothing can come against him and we belong to him. And Lord, we are victorious when we are in Christ Jesus and his church belongs to him and he is raising up a glorious bride and he is raising up a glorious church. Lord, I pray... Lord, that you would help us to walk humbly before you. Help us to walk, Lord, Lord, with this knowledge that we don't deserve any of this. Lord, that we were lost and dead in our transgressions and sins, but because of his great love, God sent his only son to die so that we could be free. So that we could be free. And so, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to walk in the liberty and in the freedom of our God and Savior, living to praise your name. And I pray for this church right now. I pray for Pastor Chris and Pastor Nicky. Lord, I pray, Lord, that your hand would be on them. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would lead them and guide them as they seek to navigate the way ahead. And Lord, I pray that this church would go from strength to strength. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would fulfill the vision that you've planted upon their hearts. Lord, I pray that wherever the church is planted in the different towns and villages of Scotland, Lord, that there would be an outreach to the indigenous population. And Lord, that the, that the people of Scotland would hear of a glorious bride through this church and that people would come in numbers. Lord, that numbers, hundreds, thousands of people would be swept into the kingdom. Scotland needs it. Lord, we have departed from your word. We have turned from our heritage in you and we've become so secular. But Lord, I pray, Lord, that you've sent these missionaries back to our land. And Lord, I pray in Jesus' name, Lord, that you would use them, Lord, to reach the population of Scotland and that through them, the glory of Christ would be seen. And this message of Christ would be held up that he is coming, Lord, as the King of Kings. He's not coming as a humble servant anymore. No longer is he a name to be blasphemed on people's lips. No longer is he one to whom his majesty is hidden. But Lord, one day, one day, and he is here in our scripture right now. And to those who have eyes to see, we understand this that he is now risen and glorified. And so, Lord, I pray, Lord, for your presence and your anointing and your power to be in this place. And, Lord, that you would build your kingdom through this church. In Jesus Christ's name we pray and for your glory. Amen. God bless you. God bless you.